The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. Happy Friday. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. Under pressure, with costs going up all across the economy, companies are forced to either raise their prices or shrink their profits. We'll tell you which parts of the market are safe and have that pricing power right now. Plus, just the beginning. Dan Jurgen says EVs are just one part of the auto tech revolution that will impact every aspect of our lives. So why aren't the stocks doing better? We'll ask. And Amazon seems to be the king of, well, everything these days. Apple's EU problems and the April Fool's joke that went over poorly with the SEC. It's all coming up in rapid fire. But first, we start with the markets. Dom Chu has those numbers. I'm going to have Queens under pressure in my head all weekend now, thanks to you. The, but, you know, inflation, margin pressures aren't the only thing under pressure right now. Markets are under pressure as well, but not by that much. Fractionally speaking, the Dow Industrials, the S&P, and the Nasdaq all moving to the downside here, roughly half to two-thirds of 1%. Uh, to give you an idea, it's been negative pretty much all day. The S&P 500 at the highs was still down 13 points at the lows, down roughly 33 points. So again, tilted towards the bottom end of this range so far today. We'll see if that continues. On a one-week basis, here are the sector themes that have developed over the last week. It has been energy and communication services within that kind of tech media realm that have been the real outperformers. You can see they're up about two to four and a half percent. Meanwhile, technology per se and healthcare, the two underperforming sectors so far. So over the last week, a very big divergence happening within certain parts of the tech, media and telecom atmosphere. So watch those particular sector themes this week. And then Berkshire Hathaway. It's down about 1% so far today, but it did hit a record high in trading yesterday. It's up about 47% over the last year. By the way, that outperforms the S&P 500. It also is outperforming the S&P on a year-to-date basis as well. I mention it because, yes, tomorrow, Saturday, is that big Berkshire annual meeting for the first time ever. It's going to be second time it's done virtually, but for the first time ever, it's not going to be held in Omaha, Nebraska. Warren Buffett going out to Los Angeles to join Charlie Munger. So it's going to be L.A. It's going to be virtual. Berkshire's near record highs. We'll see what happens. A lot of folks like to watch what comes out of that annual meeting for Berkshire. Back over to you, Kelly. I will catch every utterance from Munger and Buffett while, while we still can. Uh, L.A., Omaha or otherwise. Dom, thank you very much. The catchphrase that everyone in corporate America has been talking about lately is cost pressures. Inflation has become a huge topic. And now we're seeing it show up in consumer prices. Let's follow the money. Commodity prices have been soaring this year. Look all around. You have oil, copper, lumber, aluminum, all up between 20 and 70 percent. Palladium is at an all-time high today. And then shipping issues only made things worse. Indeed, prices are rising in nearly all categories of business. Just this morning, Goodyear, Colgate, Newell and Clorox all making comments about rising costs causing a hit to their profits. Other companies are having more luck passing these along to higher consumers. Today, the core PCE number, a key measure for the Fed, saw its biggest month-on-month gain since October of 2009. We also learned that thanks to stimulus checks, household income surged a record, uh, near record, 21 percent in March. But what happens as the boost from government stimulus wears off? Will consumers keep paying up? 
or will they push back and hurt corporate profit margins? There's a lot at stake. And joining us now to discuss, Charlie Babrinskoy is vice chair and head of investment group at Ariel Investments. And Emily Rubin is a financial advisor at UBS Global Wealth Management. Charlie, it's great to see you again. So the value trade, you know, tech versus value has been a topic of discussion for us all year. You have the kind of an inflation piece of the puzzle moving your way. Um, where should investors put their money right now? Well, thank you for making that link because a lot of people don't. What inflation does is it pushes up interest rates. Interest rates push up discount rates. And all of a sudden, the dollar that a growth company is going to earn 10 years from now is not worth so much. But our value stocks are making that dollar today. And so in the past couple of years, we had almost negative real interest rates. And so that dollar 10 years from now was almost worth more. Now, as we get more and more inflation, the companies making money today become relatively more valuable. The other thing that value stocks have is assets today. Those growth stocks are going to have to be building those plants and equipment over the next five years at higher and higher costs versus the value stocks that own the PP&E. That's an interesting point, Emily. I think people go, well, it's fine. Tech companies, they have all the money in the world. So they pay a little bit more for the plant. You know, they're still look at Amazon, look at uh, Google this week. But of course, those are just a couple examples of, of tech companies with actual profits versus, and we'll talk about this later, EVs and some other parts of the, that mar space that barely have any profits. And that becomes a bigger problem. Do you generally advise people the same thing that Charlie's talking about um, to kind of look for you know, look at uh, away from tech, look at companies with pricing power. Where where would you have people invest? Yeah, we definitely agree. And we think the next leg of the market up will continue to be this reflation trade, particularly uh, financials and energy, which will both do well in a higher yield environment, as well as this increased growth environment that we're hitting. And they've been behind S&P since the end of 2019 by 13% and 46% respectively. So we definitely think there's some value there. But the other thing that he mentioned was negative real yields. And we think that's really important when we're thinking about inflation, because with with uh, with inflation increasing and interest rates still at lows, real yields on cash are even more negative. Mm. And, you know, that's not good for our investors. There's a lot of excess cash on the sidelines. And we're advising our clients to put some of this excess cash to work because it's going to be a drag on their returns. I mean, it's amazing to sit here and go, yeah, financials and energy and, you know, value names. And, you know, this has not been where investors think they can make money. They're in crypto. They're in, you know, tech. They're in SPACs, Charlie, until recently. So uh, that said, some of the names that you like have done pretty well. I mean, Mosaic is up 54 percent year to date. So is that, you know, too much to uh, swallow at this point or could it still have uh, a lot more upside? Yeah, there are a lot of these value names that look like they've done wonderfully in the last, really since September of last year. But if you look at a 10-year chart, Mosaic hasn't done well at all. It's trading right around its book value. Mosaic has a lot of wins at its back right now. Ag prices, Mosaic's a fertilizer company. Mm -hmm. Ag prices are heading up. Farmers are doing very well. It's getting expensive to bring fertilizers in from Morocco. So lots of things at the back of, of Mosaic. We still like it a lot here. Emily, what about the Fed? You know, when we look at the comments from Kaplan this morning, granted he's a hawk, but it, it seemed to upset the market when he starts talking about the need to talk about the taper. Um, is that something that you think enhances the attractiveness of financials and energy? Does it become a headwind for the market or is it a non-event? Well, I mean, rising yields actually are good for financials and energy, which is one of the reasons that, that, that we think that they're attractive right now. 
we don't expect the Fed. We, you know, they're saying they're going to uh, leave rates lower for longer, and 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 that's what we expect. But I do think we have to keep a watch on on tapering potentially occurring by year end, which will you know cause some volatility in the markets. So you think it could be possible? But I see in your comments here, why don't you think inflation is going to be a lasting problem? You seem to be in the transitory camp that the policymakers are also in. Yeah, I mean, we think that inflation he- headline CPI could get above four percent temporarily. Mm-hmm. But, you know, pent up demand is meeting constrained supply. And we're also comparing to a year ago when the economy was essentially shut down. So, yes, we agree that it's going to be transitory and on the path to a sustainable recovery. And, Charlie, don't we have to wait until probably the autumn to see whether, you know, all of the supply chain issues get themselves worked out? All of these workers, as those boosted jobless benefits end, maybe that's downward pressure on the labor force as it expands. I mean, won't we have a clearer picture in about four to six months time of what's really going on with the economy than we than all these weird kind of pent up uh, numbers that we're seeing right now. Okay, sure. We're lapping weak numbers from a year ago, but we won't be in November. And I think we're going to have over 4% CPI in November. And we, you can't just add new copper mines. You can't add new lumber mills. This supply problem, semiconductor plants don't just rev up 20% higher capacity. We are going to have very tight markets, uh, from, in my opinion, for the next three or four years. <laughs> labor prices are headed north. Uh, uh, minimum wage numbers are going up and are going to stay up. Uh, And these deficits we're running right now don't go just down to zero. So are there going to be a lot of inflationary forces in place, I think, for several years to come? Make sure you're careful about your bond exposure. Bonds get killed in this kind of environment. All right, we have to go. But, Emily, I do want your thoughts on that because I know you're a little bit more dovish on inflation. What are you telling people about bonds? Are you also recommend? Do you think they're too rich here? Well, inflation and higher yields certainly has been a headwind for bonds. But it can be a tailwind, you know, over the longer term as reflation risk reduces. So we think bonds have a place in our portfolio. In fact, if you look back at history over the last uh, 100 years, bonds have only U.S. government bonds have only been down over a three year period, 0.4 percent of the time. That's 0.4. And then by only 2 percent. So if you hold on to your bonds for long enough, you're likely to get a positive return. And when we're looking at their place in portfolios, they're good for income, although not as much as we would like right now. Yeah. Diversification, certainly, uh, which is important, uh, particularly, you know, equities versus fixed income have only simultaneously gone down over a 12 month period, one percent of the time. And we saw how complimentary they were in a hugely volatile yeah. year like last year. No, I, so, and you've been right, and you've been on the right side. Of, but every time I hear that, I think back to when people in 05 said, home prices have never gone down. You know, here's a 100-year chart. They've never, U.S. home prices have never gone down. Um, but I, I absolutely, absolutely take your point, because over the last 10 years, time and again, people have sold their bonds too quickly. Um, we'll leave it there. Both of you, thank you so much for the discussion today. Charlie Babinskoy and Emily Rubin squaring the circle here on inflation for us. Let's talk about the auto industry, which is changing rapidly, moving away from gas-powered engines and towards self-driving electric vehicles. That heralds major economic, geopolitical, and cultural impacts, according to my next guest. But despite the rise of auto tech, the stocks in this sector have been hit hard this year. Names like Blink, Lordstown, Lee Auto, all seeing big drops. Lordstown down nearly 50% year-to-date. Can this transition happen quickly enough for investors? Dan Jurgen is a Pulitzer Prize-winning author and vice chair at IHS Market, and he joins me now with more. Dan, it's great to have you, and you really trace out this whole uh, issue very well. But 
How quickly can we transition to auto tech? I mean, as I mentioned with some of the stock performance, I think it's almost as if investors are losing a little patience, uh, maybe with the narrative. Yeah, what we saw in the stock was uh, enthusiasm, speculation, frenzy on, on those all those electric uh, car things. I think this is a trend. What I said in uh, in the new in the new map and in my article last week is that this plays out over you know it's really a two decade thing, but it's accelerating because of the policy driv- drivers for electric cars because there are really three things that come together here: electric cars, ride hailing, and autonomous vehicles. That's what gets you into the world of uh, auto tech. And it is technology, but it's also policy. If, uh, in, in Joe Biden's infrastructure plan, 50% more is being spent on electric car promotion than is being spent on roads, bridges, highways, and ports. And, of course, you have General Motors saying they're going to try and have no gasoline cars after 2035, and California saying you can't buy one. Uh, so, uh, so there are a lot of forces, but I think it's something that basically plays out over two decades. Yeah. Uh, this year... Electric cars are about 3% of, of the market so far. No, I, you know, it's interesting to read your piece and think about, you know, back when oil was kind of the most important um, sort of supply issue for the economy, you had tensions with the Middle East and all of those pressures that created a whole different set of politics. And as you point out now, today we're probably talking more about the key relationship between the U.S. and China. And that would be a whole interesting area to delve into. But as I was reading your piece, Dan, I thought to myself, I mean, would you even be writing about oil today? Do you even care about the oil market anymore? I oh, mean, I'm this, still writing about oil. It's yeah, still but you know what I mean? It's not, it's yeah. not the same. I mean, it, I, you know, it, now as the, as the old saying goes, you know, chips are the new oil. Data is the new oil. I mean, that's well, what I kept thinking as I read your piece. Well, it is true. I mean, what is, what's the biggest shortage right now? Uh, it's uh, shipping conta- uh, ships for, with containers and computer chips. But oil, partly what's changed oil, we shouldn't forget, is the fact that the U.S. has gone from importing 60 percent of its oil to being energy independent. So there's a sense of that we're not vulnerable to it. And uh, and uh, so there is this greater stability. But clearly, uh, right now, what we're seeing is a convergence of geopolitics and the new supply chains for the net zero carbon economy. Yeah, there's a lot of run through China. And uh, what did what did President uh, Biden say? In his infrastructure plan, we want to win the EV market against China. We worry about battery security rather than energy security. It's it's fascinating. And he is very specific about it. He doesn't dance around the uh, issue either in the way that the the two nations confront one another. Uh, Let me ask you as well. So we have a company like ExxonMobil, which just reported earnings. They're caught smack in the middle of this transition, aren't they? I mean, yes, they have other businesses. They do chemicals and so forth. But... What do you do? Uh, you have the whole, you know, ESG revolution where people aren't going to want to own anything that's not, you know, that doesn't comply with the environmental standard, at least. Um, they, the company itself is trying to pivot, but obviously the supply chain for EVs is dramatically different than it is for gas-powered cars. What, what does a company like Exxon do? And what should investors do? they stay away from it? Or is Exxon yeah, well, going to figure out how to pivot? Well, obviously, investors who, you know, going back to your previous conversation from last autumn to now, it would have been a pretty good trade for mm-hmm. investors. Uh, but I think that the, uh, you know, oil demand globally is probably still going to increase until 2030. So it's not going away. But uh, every company now needs to have an ESG strategy, as well as a business strategy and a technology strategy. And you saw Exxon came out with this big program for carbon capture uh, in the energy industries around Houston. So I think all the companies are moving towards this notion of, of uh, energy management has to be part of the business. They're all work, but all of them need a new social compact or a new social contract with investors. And that's 
true in a way it wasn't even a year or two ago. And energy management is a great phrase and a great way to put it. And you think of these practitioners as being in a very good position uh, to be leading that change. Dan, thanks so much. Always good to Thank get you. your perspective. Dan Jurgen from IHS Market. Coming up, if you're in the market for a brand new home, prepare yourself for some serious sticker shock. Rising lumber and land prices are pushing costs way up. We'll tell you how much and the overall impact on home buying next. And from prime video to ads to the cloud business, Amazon seems to be dominating everywhere. We'll take a closer look at the company's blowout quarter and, as one analyst put it, whether this is a permanent pull forward in demand. We're back in a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. If you thought buying a home was expensive these days, try building one. Diana Olick joins me now with what's pushing costs up to eye-popping levels. Diana? Kelly, yeah, material and land costs for the home builders are off the charts, adding to your cost for a newly built home. So let's start with lumber, which seems to set a new record really daily, up nearly 70% in just the last two months, up 340% from a year ago. And lumber doesn't just go into framing a house, it goes into added costs for cabinets, doors, windows, flooring. Then you've got your gypsum, that's drywall. Prices up nearly 7% from a year ago. Steel mill product prices at a new record high, up 18% in March. This is your beams, sheet metal products, and wiring. Copper also set a new record high this month. And finally, what do you put all this pricey stuff on? Well, you put it on land. And the price per single lot is up 11% so far this year compared with the same period last year. And that's because demand is so high, supply so low, new lot supply down 20% from a year ago, all this according to Zonda. And the inventory, it's tightest in San Diego, Baltimore, San Francisco, with Baltimore and Nashville seeing the biggest drops. So in the end, lot supply in 90% of the top markets tracked by Zonda is considered significantly undersupplied. And that, Kelly, is why you are paying more for a new home. Yeah, I know. I hear about it all the time anecdotally. Um, people, some, some who are involved in building a home, but just you know, you are aware in town the costs of every aspect of what's involved in putting one up. Here's my question, Diana. Mortgage rates are up. They're high. Now, we know they're still historically low. But is that having any impact on the housing right now, uh, market right now? Or are the, all these other factors far more important? Well, it actually helped fuel some of the higher home prices that we're seeing right now in the existing home market, especially because with mortgage rates in the fall were at such record lows that that gave people additional purchasing power. They got in there. They were able to get into bidding wars. Now you're seeing rates shift higher and higher or about a quarter to half percentage point higher than we were at the end of last year. That cuts into your purchasing power. And we did see 
both pending and new home sales uh, or pending home sales and closed home sales for existing homes dropped a bit over the last two months. And so we're seeing those buyers pull back. Of course, part of that's low supply, but it's also these higher prices for new homes. You know, the builders are still seeing huge demands. So you got to wonder if those higher mortgage rates really aren't a factor for those people who are paying that additional price premium already for the newly built home. So perhaps it's having an effect on existing home sales. Not so much in the new home market, though. Yeah, that's a great point. It's fascinating. Uh, we'll see what happens as the spring plays out. Diana, thank you so much. Our Diana Olek. Coming up, we know about the chip shortage that's hitting the auto industry, but there's another shortage out there in the car world that many haven't been paying attention to. And when the rubber meets the road, consumers may end up paying more. That story is ahead. Plus, cable, credit, and cooling off. A look at the stocks that dominated in April with gains of more than 20%. And don't forget, you can watch us anytime live using the CNBC app. The Exchange is back right after this. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's get you a check on the markets right now. The Dow is down 275 points at the lows today. As I mentioned earlier, perhaps some comments about tapering from Robert Kaplan of the Fed spooked markets, uh, but he is considered a hawk, so it's not necessarily indicative of what the overall Fed is thinking. And we're off the lows. The Dow's down 186. That's half a percent right now. In fact, pretty consistent half percent declines for all the major averages. Let's back out for a second as we close out the month of April and look at who led us in the S&P 500 this month. Dish was the big winner, up 26 percent. Equifax right behind it. Even Pool Corp up 22 percent. Man, talk about shortages. There's going to be a chlorine shortage uh, this summer as well. On the move right now, Twitter shares are down double digits on disappointing user growth and weak guidance, with the company warning that rising expenses related to growing its workforce could crimp profits this year. Twitter is down 13.5 percent. Overstock is higher after its results. The stock up 67 percent this year. A volatile name, uh, but never disappointing on that front. Let's get over to Rahel Solomon now for a CNBC News update this hour. Hi, Rahel. Hi, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour. Derek Chauvin's criminal trial was the first in Minnesota to be broadcast live, and it looks like it will not be the last. An order allowing live broadcast does remain in effect. Court officials also say that it will allow live coverage when the other three officers in the George Floyd case go on trial in August. Starting today, New Orleans is dropping capacity limits for businesses, restaurants and bars, although social distancing must be maintained and the city is keeping its mask mandate. You can see how businesses are reopening from Florida to California tonight on the News with Shepard Smith. And finally, one quarter of a billion dollars. That is what Sony paid Paul Simon for his songwriting catalog. This, according to Forbes, 
That would be less than the $300 million plus that Bob Dylan received for his catalog, but far more than the $100 million that Stevie Nicks got for a majority of her catalog. Kelly, I'll send it back to you. Un, I mean, good for them, Rahel. They're fine. I mean, they, they, we talk about Spotify and how much they're able to pay artists right now. But if you can sell your catalog, if you're one of the few artists who transcends, you can sell your catalog for that much money. Oh, my God. Yeah. And good music never goes out of style. You know, well said. Well said. We'll see you next hour, Rahel. Thank you very much. Coming up, primed for domination, the EU versus Apple, a shot to get back to the office and a marketing stunt gone wrong. It's all coming up in rapid fire. But first, it's Friday, and that means it's time to look ahead to what's in store for your money next week. Here's your Friday fast forward. It's that time of year again. The Berkshire Hathaway Annual Shareholder Meeting kicks off this weekend with Warren Buffett taking the stage on Saturday. Investors will be closely watching what the Oracle of Omaha has to say on the markets and the economy. Meanwhile, it's vaccines, vacations, Vegas, and vegans for earnings this week. With Pfizer, Moderna, Booking Holdings, Expedia, Caesars Entertainment, DraftKings, and Beyond Meat reporting. Pandemic darling Peloton also out with results. It's down 32% in 2021 as the country reopens. Can it get its mojo back? Plus, we'll get results from Uber and Lyft, both climbing as people leave their houses again. The Epic Games versus Apple trial kicks off on Monday. The Honest Company starts trading on Wednesday. SEC Chair Gary Gensler testifies in front of the House Financial Services Committee on Thursday. And employment data for the month of April is out on Friday. That's your Friday Fast Forward. Welcome back. It's that time. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar this Friday. It is time for Rapid Fire. And here to help us break down the headlines are Robert Frank, CNBC contributor and Wall Street Journal columnist Joanna Stern. Welcome, Joanna. I don't think I've seen you on Rapid Fire. This is like a match made I in heaven. I haven't seen you in a while. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And Tim Seymour is back. Tim, how much fun was the stock draft yesterday, by the way? I mean, it's nice to be in first place. It's a long season, but it was fantastic. It was, I mean, that's, that's must-watch TV, always. But do you mean because your stocks are doing so well, or you just got to go first? Well, uh, look, it, it's always a good time. It happens to be nice when you're in first place, and it's day one, but I'm in first place, uh, so I'll take it. All right, very good. Let's move on. First topic today is Amazon, which was picked on the stock draft. But anyway, it's primed for even further domination. After smashing first quarter estimates and reporting record profits, outgoing CEO Jeff Bezos revealed more than 175 million Prime members streamed TV shows or movies in the past year. Total Prime video streaming hours are up more than 70% year on year. Amazon also secured a 10-year deal to stream Thursday Night Football beginning in 2023. And that's not all. Look at their ad business. Revenue there surged 77%, Robert, to nearly $7 billion last quarter. And we're talking about Amazon's video dominance. We're talking about YouTube's dominance. And Netflix is kind of not in the conversation anymore. Yeah, here's another Amazonian figure. So Jeff Bezos today added about $5 billion to his wealth. He is now worth about $207 billion. So right now in the sort of race against Elon Musk, he's up by around $27 billion. Now, if Bezos hadn't divorced, uh, he would be worth around $265 billion. And, you know, it's just not just the amount of wealth that's incredible, but you look at his physique lately. I mean, this is a guy. <laughs> have you seen his like biceps and pecs? I mean, when he retires at the end of this year, he's going to have more time to spend 
his wealth and on his physique. I mean, the, the guy's you know, got a great life ahead. Amazon's going to be doing great without him. It's just a great setup. I wonder, actually, Joanna, that makes me wonder if this is like the worst time for, for Jassy to be taking over. You know, they always joke about how when new CEOs come in, they want to kill the stock price so that they, when you look back, you over his tenure, Jassy has increased Amazon's stock price by blah, 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 blah. Well, that's going to be hard to do in this case. Right, right. Where what does he climb? There's no hill to right. climb right now for Jassy. Although to uh, to Frank's point, I mean, maybe it's just he's just got to build up his biceps, and that's Jassy's real uh, uh, challenge for the next couple of years. But back to the streaming point, I think the streaming point was really significant over, uh, especially when we heard about the Netflix earnings earlier this week. I mean, uh, Netflix is saying they've had a, a killer quarter and a killer year uh, with the pandemic, but looking ahead, they're looking at slower subscriber growth. And one of the big things they say, though, is that doesn't have to do with competition. Um, and I've just I've, I've had some doubts about that. There are yeah. so many streaming players now. It just seems like that eats into the time we spend on Netflix. And for many, they're making decisions. What am I going to subscribe to? Right. So, Tim, here's what I wonder. Look at the performance of Twitter this week. Look at Pinterest. These are clear sort of reopening hangover stocks. What happens with Amazon? Can they be a permanent pull forward, so to speak? Or at some point, are they going to face a reset? You know, I thought his face was still. I think it's frozen. (laughs) Robert, I'll give you that question, then we'll move along. Yeah, look, I mean, the 175 million subscribers is amazing. There is a lot more competition. But if you look at the number of markets that Amazon went into just in the quarter, it was global payments, it was global procurement, it was the NFL, it was teaming up with the Yankees. I mean, just the businesses that they launched in the quarter alone would each be unicorns and giant IPOs on their own. So, Yes, you know, streaming faces competition and there's all kinds of issues in terms of the amount of investment they need to keep doing. But the markets they're going into and will just dominate because they enter them is just staggering every single quarter. All right. Uh, Tim, since you're back, let me ask you, would you rather talk Amazon or Apple, my friend? Okay. Okay, let's talk Apple. (laughs) Uh, European regulators say Apple abused its position as gatekeeper of its app store, claiming it has a monopoly in the distribution of music streaming apps. The EU opened an antitrust investigation into the app store last year after Spotify complained of unfair competition and licensing agreements. Developers, remember, are required to pay that 30 percent commission to Apple on all subscription fees gathered through the app store in year one. On top of that, Apple also denies them the ability to offer consumers other ways to sign up. Now, Apple has fired back, calling the EU's case, quote, the opposite of uh, fair competition. It claims it actually helped Spotify grow into the largest music subscription service in the world by providing access to his platform and services. Joanna, is this argument going to work? Well, I think it's the argument we're going to be hearing uh, across all of Apple's regulatory and uh, legal issues. I mean, we're headed into the epic, the federal epic case that's coming up this next week. And I think we're going to hear a lot of the same arguments from Apple, which is, one, we provide this platform and we have allowed these companies to be extremely successful. And two, some of these restrictions have allowed these companies to make even more money than they would have made on our on our platform. Um I don't necessarily buy these 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 arguments. I think there's uh, there is certainly, as you said before, a gatekeeper aspect, and many believe a bully aspect in the sense that they own the store, they set the rules, and they've been pushing their weight around. Tim, is Apple a stock you'd be a buyer of here? 
Look, the only thing I care about with Apple is what they told us yesterday, which is that there's 205 billion of cash on the balance sheet. They've got 660 million paid subs. They've got a billion uh, installed base and a 5G cycle that is a super cycle. So uh, I, we've heard this before. We've seen this before. Apple is a bully uh, and they can be a bully uh, as an investor. And again, we talk about this investor versus trader in Apple. Uh, be an investor here. This, this company uh, is innovating. The services business grew 26 percent. Uh, you know, the dynamic of the services business, including podcasts, including streaming, uh, is 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 growing and becoming more important. So um, these are not great headlines and Apple's going to have to figure this out. And there may be other people coming after them. They have been for years, but it's not a reason to sell the stock. And, and you're buying weakness on Apple the next time you see it. Yeah. And you're, you'd be selling a, what Berkshire would happily be buying. I bet we'll hear some more from them as well on this investment over the weekend. All right. Next, if you plan on going into the office, you might need to bring that vaccination card because a new Arizona State University survey shows that more than 60 percent of U.S. companies plan to require proof of vaccination from employees. It's a bigger number than I would have imagined. The responses came from more than 900 American firms across dozens of sectors. Forty four percent said they'll require all employees to get vaccinated. Thirty one percent say they would encourage it. And 14 percent said they would only require some employees to get the vaccine before you decide you won't comply. Consider that 42 percent of companies say they won't allow unvaccinated people back in their buildings. And a third say disciplinary actions are on the table. Robert, what are your thoughts on this? This is just going to be a tricky issue that just gets trickier. You have that controversy in Florida where the governor has essentially and, and now the legislature is going to prevent companies from preventing non-vaccinated employees from returning to work and questions about the constitutional constitutionality of both the legislation and whether companies can indeed require employees to be vaccinated to come back to work. Most companies, you know, when I did reporting here in New York, are saying we are strongly encouraging employees. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean that they can or cannot walk through right. that door with their employee badge if they have not been vaccinated? And I think beyond the constitutional legal issues, it's going to be a question of what companies went, what they really do when the rubber hits the road and their non-vaccinated employees who are at the door want to come back to work. And what do they say? I suspect they will let them in. But I, and I suspect they won't go the legal route. But this is going to be fought out in the courts. Tim, what would you add? Well, first of all, if I was allowed back in the office, you wouldn't have that goofy frozen picture of me that you just had before. So, I mean, is it because you're not getting be better for everybody. What's the issue here? <laughs> no, no. I, look, I'm, I'm, I'm vaxxed and I'm, I'm proudly vaxxed. So I, I think it's a case where uh, it, it comes down to where employers want to grant flexibility in the future. I think that's the most important dynamic. 2021, I think there's very li little employers can do uh, to push on folks. And I don't think most employers will. Um, but I think providing some flexibility in the workplace, especially for those who really can be location independent, is just going to be a perk. It's going to be something the market will decide. Those companies will get the best workers if they can offer that. Uh, but I think there's a lot of businesses, frankly, that rely on the interactivity of people being in the same place oh, sure. that want their people back. And, and, Joe, and you know, I think that's yeah. not a bad thing. Joanne, I wonder, too, I mean, if the workforce is one issue, but what if there are events or restaurants or other types of gatherings that are going through the same process of saying either you must be vaccinated to enter or you can't. I mean, it, it would seem to raise some of the issues Robert was describing. 
Yeah, and as as both of them were talking, I was really thinking about what are the encur- what's the encouragement that's going to come from these companies. I think that's one of the most interesting things. What can they do to encourage employees without actually saying you must get vaccinated, whether it be time off to get the vaccine, time off in other areas, uh, like you're saying, perks to to go to the parties, to go do these sorts of things, um, and then of course for employees, yeah, like just living your normal life. Those are probably going to be the bigger incentives for them. Yeah, I mean, I was almost going to joke. I mean, you don't have to offer a lot, I think, uh, often to get people to do things. Um, it, there may be some who are just simply on the fence. Others, if, if they are more opposed, that's a different, different story. But uh, as I you mean, said, just upgrading the coffee in your office right. might just be enough right. for people. <laughs> that's kind of where my head was going. <laughs> exactly. OK, finally, the SEC is probing whether Volkswagen violated securities rules. Securities rules with its Volkswagen April Fool's stunt. VW leaked a false report. It was considering changing its name to highlight its EV efforts. It later claimed the whole thing was a joke to call attention to its electric vehicles. Well, the problem, Tim, is that its stock shot up 5 percent on the news. Does the SEC have any recourse here? Look, misrepresentation, no matter what the intent, is something that the SEC is very focused on. And there have been other, you know, higher profile examples of that um, funding 420. You know, we know who that was. And, and I, I, I just mm-hmm. think that there's there's a difference between cracking a joke and, and having investors uh, on the wrong side of the joke. Um, I, I think the highlight here is ultimately that VW is a leader in the EV space. They are focused on it. Um, I, you know, my play is GM in the space, who I think actually on multiple is a lot more attractive and has a lot less EV with a lot more EV in their future priced into their stock. But yes, I, I think you have to be careful about the communication of the markets. And I'm, I'm all for clear communication. Robert, I guess to me, it's strange because I would imagine once it became clear this was a joke, the stock would have given back the gains. I mean, is the SEC implying that the 5% or perhaps it's like, okay, it moved 5% that day. So inside, or what is the issue of the 5% that day or 5% permanently? Or you know what I'm saying? I mean, it would seem to be sort of a high... Yeah. A high bar to say that anything your company ever does, even if a CEO makes a joke at this point, if it affects the stock price. But I guess in this issue, it's because people thought they were serious for a while. Yeah, it's confusing exactly what they're going to what they would charge them with or what they're investigating. This is a waste of SEC time. The only (laughs) thing that Volkswagen is guilty of is calendar abuse. They put this out on the wrong day. It wasn't April 1st. It was March 30th. And then they corrected it the next day. And so no one knew it was an April Fool's joke because it wasn't April Fool's Day. So (laughs) fine, you got your calendar wrong. You should be ashamed. Please get better at calendar maintenance. But the SEC, especially at a time with so much froth and investor deception in the markets right now, this is not where they should be spending their time. All right, we got to go, but Joanna, my hot take on this. I'm going to play counter that. Well, and I think they should change their name to Volkswagen. I like the name. I think it's brilliant. Go ahead. I actually hope the SEC punishes here only for the reason that this teaches every company to stop with April, April Fool's jokes. Yeah, I know that, too. And that's just my wish here, is just please stop. So this is what it takes. I'm sorry, Volkswagen. That's I'm true. Sorry. They're taking one for the team. Robert Frank, Joanna Stern, and Tim Seymour, thank you all very, very much uh, for this edition of Rapid Fire. Next, from ketchup to chicken to rental cars, there's a lot that's currently out of stock. And thanks to a fungus ravaging trees and a lack of shipping containers, you can add rubber to that list. The CEO of Bridgestone joins us to discuss next. Welcome back. The beleaguered auto industry, already facing a chip shortage, has another challenge on the horizon. A rubber shortage as a fungus affecting rubber-producing plants has destroyed 10% of global supply 
and the rubber has to fight for shipping containers in order to get here. Joining me to discuss is Bridgestone America's president and CEO, Paolo Ferrari, perfect name for being sort of in the car business. Uh, Mr. Ferrari, it's great to have you here. What uh, impact is this having on Bridgestone already? Uh, Kelly, first of all, thank you for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. So I think broadly speaking, in general, I have to say that we haven't been affected uh, by this uh, obviously very, very difficult overall global supply chain disruption. I would say knock on wood, but so far 2020 and 2021, we've been watching the situation very carefully. My team has done a great job by you know, monitoring uh, raw material A, B, C, D, and all the ones we have, flagging is it red, is it yellow, is it green? We had some critical points at one point, but we never had to stop production, uh, unlike, of course, uh, our partners, the OEMs, and things are actually uh, not not bad. Uh, we clearly need to continue to monitor the situation, but so far we haven't been affected. You know, you say that, and it brings up an interesting point, that when there are these shortages and bottlenecks and supply problems, it's an opportunity for companies to differentiate themselves within their industry. You know, kind of a similar thing happened when we were speaking to Bloomin' Brands yesterday, the parent company of Outback and, and other restaurant chains, they kept their workforce on board. They were able to, again, differentiate themselves uh, during a very unique time for the consumer. So tell me about what you think you guys are doing better or differently than the competition and whether consumers are going to end up paying a lot more for tires this year. So first of all, I have to say that we've been uh, very proud of being an essential business through 2020. Crazy pandemic year. We've been up and running with our retail stores, our operations. Our commercial business, which is really uh, tires for truck, has been quite resilient in 2020 uh, to the extent it was actually up versus 19, and that growth is continuing into 2021. The one that suffered a bit more, of course, is the consumer element of the business, especially because of the OEMs, of course, shutting down significantly in 2020, but that's also bouncing back quite well. But to your question, what we did, um, we clearly adapted very, very fast. Uh, especially in our retail stores, we were able to immediately deploy, you know, contact-free services, curbside assistance, pickup and delivery, but also begin to offer um, mobile and on-premise services. So we launched Firestone Direct, for instance, which is our way of carrying to the customers our product and services and been very successful. We would have deployed it in any case, but clearly the pandemic accelerated that trend. So there's a lot of things that we have done and uh, business is actually very solid. 2020 was uh, a reasonable year, I would say, all things considered, and yeah. we see first quarter doing really well. So final question, because people say that rubber trees start producing seven years after planting, and this could be a multi-year issue. Even if you've gotten to this point okay, uh, what happens if the supply crunch gets worse over the next couple of years? Is there anything you can do to get rubber elsewhere? Sure. First of all, uh, again, we, we have uh, uh, plenty of, of supply and, and, and I think we're doing well. But I think our goal also in the mid and long term is to continue to invest in technology also to put in parallel other other way from, you know, synthetic rubber or other ways of really, um, uh, in a way, coping with this some potential disruption. But so far, again, we've been doing well. Very proud with the team. All right. Paolo, thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Paolo Ferrari is the CEO of Bridgestone Americas. Up next, tomorrow is the first Saturday in May, and the Kentucky Derby is back to its usual position. Frank Holland is in Louisville with what that could mean for the local economy, Frank. Hey, good afternoon, Kelly. That's right. We're here at Churchill Downs ahead of the Kentucky Derby. And we're going to look at the economic impact of the Kentucky Derby on Louisville and how their large public gatherings like these boost revenues for big cities and how that might be changing during the pandemic. Much more when the exchange returns.
Welcome back. The first leg of the Triple Crown kicks off this weekend with the Kentucky Derby. It has local businesses hoping for a much-needed boost after the race was postponed last year. And our Frank Holland is live at Churchill Downs with the Derby's economic impact. Hi, Frank. Hey, good afternoon, Kelly. All eyes on Louisville today. And as this weekend, the 447th Kentucky Derby returns. With attendance capped about 50%, it's not really back to the normal Derby. But after last year, which was run without fans, it's one small step of normalcy for this region that's really been hit hard by the pandemic. More than $400 million in economic impact is generated by the Kentucky Derby pre-COVID. This year, with people less willing to travel and stay in hotels, that impact expected to be a fraction, only about $35 million. It's hitting the hospitality industry the hardest. For this year's Derby hotel occupancy, right around 65%. Normally, it's at 99 to 100%. Events like this also drive customers to the gig economy, with rates and demand for rideshare and Airbnbs spiking in previous years. It's also harder for local merchants, who depend on the Derby for a large percentage of their annual revenues. The millions and millions of dollars that it brings in, um, they've done so much for the city. I mean, without that race, uh, I know we would we would have a very difficult time um, staying, you know, staying afloat and growing the way that we have. This change for publicly celebrated holidays and events really impacts a lot of alcohol stocks as well. Brown Foreman, the maker of Woodford Reserve, the official bourbon sponsor for the Derby says derby parties globally are historically a big revenue driver for them in this quarter. Looking ahead, the pandemic impact on Cinco de Mayo parties likely to be felt by the company that produces Jose Cuervo Tequila and Corona maker Constellation Brands. Back to you, Kelly. That's a great point as we get back into the season, and it does feel nice to be kind of back to normal. But are there other ways, Frank, in which this may not be back to normal this year for this race? Well, I mean, Kelly, listen, it's, it's half capacity. The economic impact is only a fraction. So that's really being felt by a lot of people. Also this year, uh, the Kentucky Derby really emphasizing the black history of this event. A lot of people don't know that the very first Kentucky Derby, there were 13, I'm sorry, 15 jockeys. 13 of them were black, and the winner was black. So they really try to put that in the forefront this year. They're selling $1,000 mint julep cups to raise money to preserve the heritage of those black jockeys. Wow, I had no idea. Uh, That's fascinating. Frank, thank you so much. Uh, We appreciate it, our Frank Holland. And next hour on Power Lunch, the Churchill Downs CEO will join us in an exclusive interview to discuss the 147th run for the Roses. Speaking of sports, here's a quick look at some of the gambling stocks this year. DraftKings, which was mentioned in the stock draft yesterday, it's already up 21% year-to-date. Caesars adding 31%. Win is up 50%. Of course, you get that China exposure as well. And MGF is up about 28%. Uh, that does it for the exchange today. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'll join Tyler Matheson for Power Lunch on the other side of this quick break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.